You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. We have been doing a series in First and Second Kings, which is a story about cultural decline much like we see in our own day. And it's really ramped up in the last couple of weeks, and even in particular last week we saw effectively a civil war in Israel, and Israel got divided between a northern kingdom of ten tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom gets to be called Israel still, and the southern kingdom becomes Judah, and now they're split and they have two different kings, and the story begins along parallel lines from here on in. We've got a lot to read throughout the sermon, but for the sake of our scripture reading today, we'll just start with 1 Kings 13, verses 1 through 10. 1 Kings 13, verses 1 through 10. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam, that's the king of the northern tribes, was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you to priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel. Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, And the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite dystopian novels is called A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller from way back in the 1950s. It's a book exemplifying 1950s anxiety because the tale is a post-nuclear holocaust dystopian, all prophesying that if humanity were given the power and the ability to destroy itself again, it would. Dystopians are prophecies aren't they? Warnings from the future. And they're everywhere now. Think about, for instance, The Hunger Games. It's a story about how young people will literally be at each other's throats for the sake of our entertainment. And what is that but a prophecy of teenagers and social media today? Or consider the Divergent series which is about the elimination of a counterculture through enforced cultural sameness. And what is this but a prophecy of the American empire spread everywhere? Same restaurants, the same clothes. Even the counterculture in American life has been co-opted for capitalist ends. It's not much of a counterculture anymore. 
dystopian prophecy. How about the fifth wave? It's a dystopia about alien invasions, which is really about when we fear other people, we tend to turn on each other. That's quite a prophecy. We don't see that anywhere, do we? Dystopias are really just prophecies about our own time. And because we have so many dystopias now, I could go into the top ten of young adult fiction and the majority of them will be dystopias. Because there are so many now, we should note that we too live in an era of the rise of prophecies. We live in an era of the rise of prophecies because there's dystopias everywhere. Ancient Israel lives in an age here in our text, an age of the rise of prophecies. You see, prior to 1 Kings 13 and 14, there are a few prophets here and there, but they're rather scant. Throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, there's some companies of prophets. There's Nathan, there's Gad. A few weeks ago in 1 Kings 11, we saw Ahijah. But in general, prophets have been rather scarce until today. In 1 Kings 13 and 14 and following, in our chapters alone, there's three prophets. A few chapters from now, we see the rise of Elijah, and then it's all prophets all the time in Israel's story. The rise of the prophets. You can make a Star Wars franchise out of it, it feels like. So like our own time, what does the rise of prophets mean? What does the rise of prophets mean? We'll cover four things this morning. The rise of prophets means, first, condemnation for us. Second, the rise of prophets means a chance at repentance. Third, the rise of prophets means an age of disinformation. And fourth, the rise of prophets means substitutionary deliverance. The rise of prophets means condemnation for us, a chance at repentance, an age of disinformation or disintegrating truth, and lastly, substitutionary deliverance. So first, the rise of prophets means condemnation for us. The passage jumps straight into it in verse 1 of chapter 13. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah. He's an unnamed prophet. We don't know his name. And he comes to prophesy against the north. The north that is now ruled by King Jeroboam, recently hatched off from the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam has done some wicked, wicked things that Ben preached about last week. He set up alternate shrines, he created golden idols, and he's got the people of God breaking the second commandment and likely the first all over the northern tribes. And so this prophet comes to bring condemnation, to bring judgment against Jeroboam and his kingdom. And you could tell this is not just about spiritual condemnation. There's some political tension here too because the prophet's from the southern kingdom, the rival kingdom. Now notice though in verse 2, the judgment is not against Jeroboam. This unnamed prophet from the south cries out, Oh, altar, altar! And then he gives his condemnation to the altar, saying that there's eventually going to be this King Josiah, which is going to be hundreds of, hundreds of years from now, and he's going to destroy all this wickedness in the northern kingdom. But why condemn the altar? The altar is an inert object, after all. Why condemn an altar instead of Jeroboam? You see, the altar was a symbol of all of Israel, the northern kingdom. It was all their false worship. And therefore, it was a condemnation of everyone. Not just of King Jeroboam. King Jeroboam had set up the shrines, but who was coming to the shrines? The people. 
these golden idols that would have been on this very altar that's being condemned, the people would come to it. It was the center of their liturgical worship. And therefore, everyone was being condemned. Now we see in verses 3 through 6, a power struggle begin with this unnamed prophet and the king Jeroboam because Jeroboam doesn't like such condemnation and he asks for his men to seize the prophet, in which case his hand withers. And then the altar does crumble, just like the unnamed prophet said it would. And then Jeroboam realizes this prophet's telling the truth. Oh my gosh, would you restore my hand? Which he does. But the prophecy remains. Sadly, after all of that, Jeroboam does not change his evil ways. You can fast forward all the way to 1 Kings 13, verse 33, and it says, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. And so the next chapter actually demonstrates another condemnation of Jeroboam and his family. Jeroboam's son is sick. Now there's a different prophet, and so Jeroboam tells his wife, sends her with some goodies at the beginning of chapter 14, and he says, hey, go to the new, this other prophet, Ahijah. He said some nice things about me way back in chapter 11. Let's send you with some goodies, and maybe he'll prophesy something good and heal our son who is sick. So the wife goes, and the prophet Ahijah does not have kind things to say to Jeroboam's wife about Jeroboam. Let me pick up the story here in verse 7 of chapter 14. If you've got your Bible, just flip a page maybe. 1 Kings 14, verse 7. This is what the prophet Ahijah says. Go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant, King David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes, but you, you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself and other gods and metal images provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male. That's what it says in English. If you want to know what it says in Hebrew, it says, I will cut off everyone who urinates against a wall, both bond and free in Israel. By the way, that's not the last of our scatological language here. And I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Yikes! Scatological language? Condemnation? Harsh. Basically, Jeroboam's kingship, which started with just his own generation, just himself, the prophet is saying, no more, it's going to end with you. Your whole line's going to die. And it's, you're not even, your sons aren't even going to have honorable burials. That's essentially what dying in the fields or the streets means. They're not going to even have honorable burials. They'll be like human waste, discarded and worthless. Whoa. This is why we don't like prophets, right? They condemn us. But of course, that's not entirely true, is it? We don't mind if a prophet's condemning someone else because we all see problems in other people that should be corrected. When the International Justice Mission rightly busts up sex trafficking rings, we cheer that the bad guys go to prison. When our favorite opinion maker is condemning our political enemies for things they failed at, we cheer, we applaud. What about an example closer to home? 
When our coworkers aren't getting along or doing their jobs, we want our boss to bring in the judgment, and we judge her when she doesn't. We don't mind it when a prophet condemns someone we think worthy of condemnation, but when it's leveled at us, our tendency is to either be defensive or to ignore it, which is what Jeroboam does here. You may be more like Jeroboam than you know. If you find yourself consistently defensive, or ignoring any correction in your life. An old boss used to say to me about critiques I would often get in the church life, he would say, is even 5% of it true? And asking yourself that question over and over again allows you to be exposed to condemnation of prophets in our own time, because maybe you need it. We like prophets when they condemn other people. We don't like them when they condemn us. And everyone has something in their life that needs to be called out, don't they? And in being called out, we have an opportunity to change. This leads us to our second point this morning, that the rise of prophets means a chance at repentance. A chance at repentance. Though the prophecies against Jeroboam are harsh, it reads like there's an opportunity for change in direction. In fact, this is the history of the prophets who level their condemnation. Jonah, when he preaches against Nineveh, does not offer repentance. He just says, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. But the people actually repent, and so God spares them the judgment. Isaiah condemns Hezekiah, but Hezekiah repents, and he spared the judgment in his own generation, the judgment of the Assyrian armies. And such is the insinuation here. Uh, When the prophecy is made against the altar, it seems like he has an opportunity to change his ways and change the direction of the future. In fact, the word repent in Hebrew here is one of the most consistently used words in chapter 13. It just is used in a different way. It's the word turn back or turn away from or go a different way. Because in Hebrew, that's what the word repent literally means, turn back, which is a word we consistently see in the story of the two prophets, which I'll read about in just a moment. So when we get down to verse 33 of chapter 13, it says, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. That means he did not repent. He did not turn around and go a different way direction like he should have. Something similar happens with Jeroboam's wife. She receives the harsh punishment or the the word of the harsh punishment from the prophet Ahijah and he tells her essentially when you get back into the city this son that's sick he's going to die. But she doesn't say anything. Doesn't seem like a very good mom. No I'll do anything. I'll do anything or I'm not going to go back into the city. I'll just live a life in exile so that my son never has to die so that this word of the prophet never comes true. Nope, she just heads straight back to the city and as soon as she gets back into the city, her son dies. Passivity. And so it seems that there are three ways to respond to a prophet's words and two of them are bad. There are at least three ways to respond to a prophet's words and at least two of them are bad. One of them is what Jeroboam does, which is defiance. Defiance is bad. Another one is passivity, though, which is what Jeroboam's wife does. To get the word of condemnation, the opportunity to repent and just say, all right, whatever, is passivity. But the third is repentance. That's good. Contrast Jeroboam and his wife with King David two generations earlier. When the prophet Nathan confronts him about wickedness, wicked things he had done, David rips his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, he fasts and prays for days. Repentance. When confronted with a harsh reality by a prophet or by a friend, 
Both defiance and passivity are prone to what behavioral psychologists call plan continuation bias. Plan continuation bias is just another, it's a, what behavioral psychologists call, what, you know, plan continuation bias, but it's what Christians call not repenting, not turning around. When confronted with a harsh piece of information, plan continuation bias is to keep going along the same path and not turning. Airplane pilots call it get their itis. As many airplane accidents occur when the airplane has gotten almost to its destination and unexpected poor weather is there and they didn't expect it, but they're almost there, so they're like, well, let's just try to land anyway. Plan continuation bias. A famous example of this happened with a ship in 1967, a huge oil tanker called the Torrey Canyon off the coast of England. It found itself unexpectedly further east than it had intended to be because of faster currents that it had anticipated. And because oil tankers take a long time to turn around or go a different direction, the captain decided, "Ah, let's try to go this other harder way to go. Because had they changed directions, it would have taken them two hours and they were on a tight schedule. And so he decides to go close to the, the shoreline of Cornwall, and he has to because a few miles out from sea, there are these huge sharp rocks, various kinds of aisles, and an oil tanker in a wide berth of about a mile or two is not very much. And plan continuation bias kept the captain going on this dangerous track between the shore and these aisles, and of course they shipwrecked on these large sharp rocks, and it became the first major oil tanker in disaster in world history. Plan continuation bias happens when the healthiest thing you could do is turn around, repent, but you keep forging ahead with defiance or passivity. We often do a spiritual version of plan continuation bias, just like Jeroboam or his wife. Here's plan continuation bias as defiance, like Jeroboam, that I often see in the life of the church. I'm not addicted to fill in the blank. I can handle it. I can manage it. I don't need help. Be that your phone, be that pornography, be that a substance, be that anything. That's plan continuation bias. I don't need help. I can keep forging on the path that I'm going. I'm fine. Don't help me. And so plan continuation bias dooms you because you were offered a chance to return often by your loved ones and you didn't repent. How about plan continuation bias as passivity? This is another one I hear. I would estimate I hear it two to three times a month. So if you feel singled out, don't. I hear it a lot. Your spouse tells you you need to go to counseling together, but you reason that you're too busy, you're too stressed, and before you know it, it's too late. And years upon years of resentment has piled up, which is really hard to come back from. Resentment. Because of your plan continuation bias, And it ultimately dooms you and it comes to disaster because no one turned. No one turned. No one repented. How how about a cultural example? You often hear scientific or technological talk about the inevitability of technological development. We don't need to turn around. We just need to keep forging ahead. Uh, I'm sure there's some kinks we've got to work out. And there's a lot of evil being done in the name of science and technology today. Here's maybe a more amusing example. Technology experts tell us that artificial intelligence like chat, GPT, is inevitable. We just need to keep going on ahead. And as a result of its release, all the major tech companies that have been working with artificial intelligence have begun to use it in their search engine functions in the last couple of months. 
which has recently turned into a bizarre experiment, if you've been paying attention to the news at all, which is damaging a lot of actual people, and it's killing some major tech companies' bottom lines because the AI hasn't worked out. No one turned. No one repented. Plan continuation bias. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says that we all want progress. We all want progress, but progress means getting near to the place where you want to be. Now, let's substitute progress here for a better marriage or a closer walk with Christ or a better culture. We all want progress. Lewis goes on to say, if you have taken a wrong turning then to go forward does not get you any nearer the goal. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back down the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. Going backward is the quickest way on to the goal. Why don't we repent anymore? I mean openly, publicly. In marriages, we just say, that's okay, instead of forgive me. Sure, we do a private confession here at church, but why don't we get specific? We don't repent anymore. We don't turn. But a good prophet offers it to us. There are, unfortunately, though, bad prophets, too. And that leads us to our third point. Let me read on. The rise of prophets means an age of disinformation. And... What happens, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 13, is another prophet comes on the scene, but he's actually a bad one. So verse 11 of chapter 13. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his son came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, Here I am. Yep, I am. Verse 15, Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. So this is a false prophet now trying to track down the good southern prophet. This false prophet from the north is trying to do. And he tries to do the very same thing that King Jeroboam did. Come to my house, eat some bread, it'll be great even though the southern prophet said, God told me not to do that. And so how does the good prophet respond in verse 16? I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. So he responds just like he originally did with Jeroboam. I'm not going. But what does the false prophet do? This is where the disinformation comes in. A lie. Verse 18. The false prophet said to the good prophet, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in this house and drank water. Oops. Now you'll read on, if you wanted to keep reading on in verses 20 through 22, the false prophet actually finally winds up saying something true. He said, because you've disobeyed the Lord, actually, you're not going to get home. You're actually going to die on the road. Sorry. And that's, in fact, exactly what happens. 
Time and time again, we see that the rise of prophets means not just the rise of true prophets, it also means the rise of false prophets. And you will see this throughout 1 Kings in what remains, that this is an age of disinformation. And what does that mean for our own age? We're in an age of disinformation too, aren't we? Competing in rival narratives and truths of what really should happen with our culture. And if that's true, what's the warning for us? What's the warning? It's this. The biggest dangers for the church do not come from outside the church. The good southern prophet goes to Jeroboam and the politician is trying to schmooze him and said, come eat bread. And he's like, no way. But when another prophet says, oh, no, no, God told me something different, that's when he was susceptible to the lie. The biggest danger, friends, come from inside the church in an era of the rise of the prophets. Look around and it's not hard to see. There are those right-wing churches who grew quickly during COVID in the last presidential cycle by being puppets for Donald Trump and an anti-COVID response. False prophets, even though they got a bigger crowd. Then there are those left-wing churches who parroted whatever left-wing narratives existed in the media or the government, judging all of their right-wing brethren as not really true Christians. Also false prophets. My old boss, John Wood, at Cedar Springs used to remind me that people will declare that they understand trends in churches as prophets, even when they don't. Consider these examples. Some say a church is growing, and isn't it great God is blessing it? Whereas other people can look at the same church and say, ah, the church is growing because they're just telling people what their tickling ears want to hear. Or about the opposite. People will say, ah, we're declining as a church because we're preaching the true gospel and that's unpopular. Whereas other people can say maybe about that same church, oh, that's just, that's just what they do. They don't care about people. Or that's just what happens in liberal churches because when you look like the culture you know, there's no reason for people to come anymore. You see, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you say. Everybody pretends that they're a prophet. And it's coming from inside the church. If you've been a part of a church for any length of time, I bet you've said one of those phrases before. I know I have. Guilty as charged. That's false prophecy. As if we could know what the mind of God is really doing in our age by various trends we see from the outside. People will baptize whatever trend they see as proof that they're right. But our takeaway, therefore, is to be humble, to listen, to repent, and to not stray an inch from the revealed gospel of Jesus Christ as we find it in the scriptures. Whatever results may come. Which leads to our final point. I promise we're almost done, but let me read on. Because we need to see how this story finishes up with this false and this good prophet. So the good prophet does die. He is killed by a lion. And the false prophet in verse 26 picks up the narrative of chapter 20, excuse me, of chapter 13. When the false prophet, the prophet, who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. 
And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! And after he had burned, buried him, excuse me, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. In this era of a rise of prophets, with increasing disinformation, with maybe just condemnation, how do we get delivered? How do we get delivered? And the false prophet shows us the way. Clearly, in verse 28, the lion is controlled by God himself because the lion has killed the good prophet but has not eaten him up in order to ensure an honorable burial, which we'll see in verse 30. And then this false prophet tells his sons, he's gone to pick him up, this dead prophet, he's gone to pick him up, and in verse 31 he says, when I die, I want to be buried with him. I think the false prophet actually is repentant here because he knows, based on what he says in verse 32, that the only salvation for Israel, for the people of God, will be to reunite with the kingdom of Judah. The only salvation comes with being aligned with the true heir of David. Do you know who that heir is? But something more is going on. The false prophet knows that it's his fault that the true prophet has died. He was the one who lied to him. He's the one who deceived him, but he's still alive. And it's the good prophet who has died. The true prophet died the death that the false prophet should have died. He's taken his place. It's been a substitution. Such that the false prophet now believes his only deliverance will come in the fact that he's already been delivered by a substitutionary death. We always and only are ever delivered by a substitution. CrossFit enthusiasts will know about Michael Murphy, whom the Murph Challenge is named after every Memorial Day. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor in death as he was killed in the line of duty. He left his cover position because they needed to radio to get back to their base to get help. But they had to cross into an open area in order to make that signal. And it was the only way that the other men could be rescued. So Michael Murphy left his cover position, went out into the open, and took on all kinds of enemy fire, taking on certain death so that other people could be saved. Like that, the false prophet knew he had been delivered from God's judgment because a true prophet took the death for him. Do you know that Jesus is the true prophet? Who says to you, I have taken on the condemnation. I'm a true prophet. I'm a good prophet. I'm a perfect prophet. I speak the very words of God. And I take on your condemnation for you on the cross. You are a people of false prophecies. You are a people of disinformation. And people lied about me. And I went to the cross anyway. They didn't think I really was the king either. And I was. I'm the true prophet. And I'm not lying. And I died for you. To the depths you know that Jesus as prophet took upon himself your condemnation and your disinformation, you will be able to be free in the truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we repent. We want to turn. For those in here this morning, would you reveal those specific ways that we need to turn this morning that we might know and be assured of the love of Jesus for us to take on our condemnation? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.